when we really find who we really are in the whole spectrum of things through really bearing witness to our unique karma, like we, we find what it is that we need to do. And if we had 8 billion people on earth who knew what they were here to do, who saw problems through their direct cognitive processes like of living, they saw things that needed to be done in only ways that they could see, you know, and then they just had the empowerment to act directly on them. I don't know, maybe we'd be living in Shambhala. <laughs> Instead, we, we live in these structures where we constantly, our, our power is being siphoned off by systems that actually will kill us <laughs> if we let them, you know, so. Welcome to Infinite Conversations. My name is Marco Morelli. And this is part two of my conversation with Caroline Savory in response to Vincent Horn and Stephen Batchelor's Buddhist Geeks podcast titled Secularizing Buddhist Ethics. So I, I know that when I sit and meditate that, although I'm not always framing it this way or thinking about it explicitly in this way, I know that I'm feeling, basically what I'm doing is feeling and being aware of my experience. I've never had a meditative experience where I'm not in my body. <laughs> I just never like I, I personally have not had a, an experience like that. I, I know that people do have experiences where they fit, they're not in their bodies and they're in another plane or they're you know at a cosmic sort of perspective or what have you. I've never had that experience while doing a meditation practice, and so um, like part I, I I want to. I mean, partly is like I want to get out of this, you know. <laughs> Like it's uncomfortable and my breathing is tight or, you know, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm, totally. I'm, suffering with, I'm struggling just with sensations, just with, yeah. or with the kind of occlusion in my flow. It's not flowing. Uh, and, but however, uh, I know that by doing the practice consistently, more or less, uh, over time, I end up on the whole through my whole life, not just in that moment when I'm sitting, I have more flow and I feel better and I'm more open and I feel like I'm more generative and I am able to give more and I'm able to handle uh, more of like the, you know, just the, the sensory um, chaos of, yeah. uh, of existence. I don't know where that goes exactly. Uh, I still have, I, th- I think we need to sort of, I'll just suggest one thing. Vincent and Stephen talk about empathy. Stephen talks about empathy being a more primary um, orientation for the Buddha than cog- than cognition was, or as they put it, metaphysics. I would say connection yeah. cognition and metaphysics, whereas yeah. empathy is more about feeling. But we have to not understand them totally separately, and that was what Vince, I think, was pointing to: is that he couldn't really disentangle cognition in the sense of thinking or ideas or the mind from embodiment, which would be more, I would think, the natural kind of ground of empathy. Yeah, and and you know my under my interpretation, I should say, because it's not an understanding; it's just how I interpret concepts of karma, is consistent with empathy. In that, you you know, the experience of, of being me is actually pretty empty. It's not something to be attached to, and yet everybody I interact with, even you know animals, are having the this experience and because it's self arising in bodies. If you, if you interpret, you know, the cognitive theory of Santiago school as I do. Um, and so that really calls for 
a great amount of care and empathy and, and just, and sympathy, sympathetic joy, as well as just sympathy with that condition of, you know, the confusion that gets caused through dis- through the distortion of the eye concept in our minds. Like the eye is useful. It has an evolutionary purpose. It's there for a reason. And so it doesn't need to be, you know, abandoned or denigrated, but it does need to be put in check with an understanding of this, the fact that at a high, at like a, a more true level than, than I am just a self, we are connected. That's a fundamental uh, realization that the life pattern makes us look more alike if we're, if we're looking on that level than the individual pattern. And, and the life pattern is what deserves our full attention and our care. Um, but to go back to something you were saying um, about not having had transcendental experiences in meditation or, or having transcended your body, we'll say, or awareness of your body through meditation. Um, so I think that's really interesting because I think it's really telling that a lot of the, the Buddhist teachings that are consistent insofar as anything like that, that you might experience is also to be left behind. It's also not something to be attached to. And, you know, I love Ram Das, uh, and I'm currently reading Be Here Now, but consistently in his writing, I see this urge to talk about, you know, the, and then you'll transcend, and then you'll be on the astral plane, and then it's like, I don't need the and then, what if I don't need it? What if we're just, you know, what if it's okay to just be bodies, you know, and also when, when you're talking about astral plane and, and things like, you know, leaving your body and connecting to a, a broader or to connecting to a level of consciousness that's beyond your own. Um, what if that's like how indigenous people mean when they're talking about listening to deer people or tree people or, you know, since when have we lost the ability to hear other species voices in terms of imbalance in the ecosystem or you know for example like if a species just disappears from our local ecosystem that's telling us something right and when have we since when have we lost the ability to hear that and hear it almost as a voice giving us information you know i think that systems thinking systems thinking and kind of pattern study and all that uh is where it's at uh and yeah and and every moment like in terms of cognition theory every moment teaches by default there's always something to be taken away from every moment and meditation i think reinforces that too um the more we pay attention paying attention maybe is all it takes and that's why Buddha, as Bachelor rightly points out, was not so much concerned with giving his followers precepts, but more concerned with facilitating them to get into their own awareness, to encourage them relentlessly. I cannot get you there. Only you can get you there. It's an inner journey, right? So uh, the body is the vehicle, and that includes really being aware of the whole experience of the body. But the body's the vehicle because what hap- what, where, the trans- where the transportation <laughs> really happens, if you think you're using the vehicle term, you know, it happens inside. It happens with 
shifts in how you relate to things that are happening to you, right? And sensitivity, um, opening, opening to pain and suffering. um, Opening, but at the same time working with it, right? I mean, this goes back to your, your sense of tractability, right? I can open to all kinds of trauma, you know, I could go get myself, put myself in a war zone or something like that. Uh, and I mean, or inadvertent, like without my wanting it, trauma can befall me. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I might live in that war zone, for example. Uh, and I don't have, I can't handle it. You know, it, it does destroy me. I watched, this is a bit of a digression, but it, I think really connects actually to the karmic piece that, that you're talking about. I watched a documentary about the musician singer Nina Simone. Mm. Um, And it was on Netflix. Um, But she uh, was so intense and she was so struggling to kind of, in a way, like through her art and through her being, through her life, like process the karma of slavery and colonialization and imperialism and racism and you know all basically you know american history for sure but really the history of seems to me the human experience as a whole in some way like concentrated in this one body mm-hmm. who um was able to process uh, uh, an incredible amount of that and turn it like transmute it into into this these beautiful experiences which you have when you listen to her music. Uh, and at the same time, it destroyed her from within. Like it, it ate her up. She suffered, um, she became violent. You know, she, she put herself and allowed herself to stay in positions where she was the recipient or the object of violence. Uh, and it's like this, this whole, um, you know, destructive uh, and um, really difficult and suffering causing like impulse that has arisen with the eye sense and with the human experience uh, seemed to really concentrate itself in, 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 in her and in this person. And in, and we all carry some of that, you know, as well, just like you were saying about yeah. a particular kind of body that, that receives a certain kind of karma. Right. 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 And, and I wouldn't even say that maybe she was unique in that she was more of a channel for it. It's that perhaps she, as an artist, she had an intense sensitivity to her truth, to her reality. And she was, she, she had to just like express about that, you know, and we are all the better for that. I, I totally love and admire Nina Simone. She really through her ferocious presence helped more white people become conscious and cognizant of the, um, these emotional and social impacts of, you know, that legacy. Absolutely. Um, And in that sense, she's courageous. And oftentimes people who, who indulge or who maybe have an inborn kind of raw sensitivity to things as artists often do, and who let that happen through their art instead of suppressing it, who let that come, you know, let that be expressed. Um, it is your, your, your being. Yeah. You, you are choosing to be a channel for powerful forces and it can, it can absolutely wreck you if you don't have um, 
a way of grounding through the flow of all of that. Um, you know, whether it's connecting to, to your roots or to your still point or you're, you know, taking the one seat, whatever it is. Um, but yeah, yeah, absolutely. What I was just trying to differentiate is that maybe she's not special Mm -hmm. or like, you know, not human, but, but she is very human. She, she's a sensitive human Mm -hmm. who let, let her self be expressed, you know? Yeah. I'm not, I'm I'm not sure why, why she arose in my mind. Maybe this is something that I'm still Mm -hmm. working through myself. The connection though, for me to the conversation, I think one of the reasons that it came up was because uh, Stephen Batchelor in his talk with Vince brought up this book uh, that he had read recently and seemed to be pretty sympathetic to in, in the sense of agreeing with its thesis uh, called Sapiens. Uh, and the book Sapiens, I have not read it myself, uh, but my understanding through Stephen was that part of what it's arguing is that something arises with the human species in particular uh, that is on the one hand incredibly creative, incredibly powerful, because we can take these shapes and we can shape our environment, like you said, yeah. uh, but also incredibly, he put it, rapacious, destructive. Uh, and um, in some way, I, I mean, I guess dissociated, right, from embodiment or from the natural flows or natural patterns or healthy uh, patterns. And, you know, this concretizes historically in slavery and racism and sexism and all of these particular forms. and you know, in the excesses, let's say, of, of capitalism or in capitalism itself. Um, but really, you trace back the, the chain of causes and, and, and you get right to the very beginning. You get, get right to the very heart of things. At least you could trace it back to the emergence of um, our civilization, uh, starting with agriculture 10,000 years ago. Uh, and in even the migration patterns of human species or human related species coming out of Africa, where you can fall, you can look at the extinction of large mammals, and it basically follows the migration patterns of human beings. So wherever we go on this earth, we kill and destroy things in the service. We are the, the, we are the worst predator that earth has ever seen. Absolutely. So it, goes, it goes very, it goes very deep. Yeah. And, yeah, it does. Um, and we're processing that. Oh, yeah. And, and I'll, you know, humans have to grapple with the consequences, the karmic consequences of having developed the ability for abstract thinking because abstract thinking where we're objectifying the world around us, tree, land, horizon, building, like all of that, right? It enables us to, to vastly, reshape our environments because we can take concepts right and and work with the concepts in our mind and then then act that out right so abstract thinking is a fundamental aspect of civilization without abstract thinking agriculture would not be be possible right um because we're abstracting the concepts of seed and then this happens and then this happens and we're we're interpreting that we're able to work with that right so we have to really deal and grapple with that and i mentioned earlier like where did we lose the ability to listen it comes from 
our destructive, our incredibly destructive abilities for civilizations such as our own, I'd say our European lineage, which has, you know, at this point colonized the planet, at least socioculturally and economically, um, from our heritage, like to, you know, our, our particular systems of agriculture, um, were ones that were irrigation based and, uh, they essentially resulted in the need, and also civilizations in general, you have a concentrated city center. And to support the growing population, you ever need to scrape more and more of the surrounding earth from that city center for agriculture. So converting lands for human purposes, right? Um, and that whole process means that for people to survive like to, to reduce the cognitive dis dissonance resulting from the destruction of their, their connection to the land, they have to numb and minimize and quiet and silence those voices. And, you know, th th that means voices from the land in terms of being able to look and experience a landscape and really hear what it's saying in terms of, you know, how, how the water flows and how the energy flows and how the animals interact and intersect and all that to really losing that sensitivity to the point that, you know, we're talking about colonizing Mars and we haven't even figured out more than 10% of the species on our own planet. That tells you something, right? Like we don't even know how to listen to being here on earth and to being in our bodies. And we, and we, it also expresses itself in the subjugation and the othering and the dehumanizing of people slavery, women, children, anything lesser than the powerful by default in this logic deserves to be abused and exploited, right? And that includes species and land. And, you know, because we, because we can, we think that we must and we should. And that comes from a silencing of, of that sensitivity because how could we live with ourselves if we retained our sensitivity while also doing those behaviors. And that point of view is one that I actually gained through the Sustainable Project interviews with um, this uh, indigenous seed farmer uh, who whose whole life's work was committed to diversifying seed pools because, you know, and he really had this very um, morpho morphogenic, is that the right word, kind of perspective on how the feedback loop of how we began to behave like shaped our minds and how that transmitted through generations and how in general, the contrast between civilization in the sense of a concentrated, you know, human populace and, and concentrations of power within human society contrasts with indigenous or more egalitarian type ways of living on earth and the kinds of sensitivities and consciousness needed for for those cultural and social structures. Um, being born into a really a, a dysfunctional um, society uh, in which, you know, I was from a young age, I remember like tr part, trying to parse this, these messages I was receiving and, and, and interpreting that, you know, women are only valued for their bodies and their sex appeal to men. And, you know, that, you know, being white was a privilege uh, and being brown or black or red, those were bad things to be. And it's because a bunch of people who didn't understand themselves, who don't understand their natures, who don't understand why everything is the way it is, are try we're trying to teach me things, which really means they're trying to indoctrinate me 
with their beliefs and ideologies that they're attached to. And it just, I mean, <laughs> like just being how exposed I was to advertising and television and like how I was, how exposed I was to just like, you know, negative, um, or like self-loathing kind of messages and like those were encouraged and I was supposed to achieve and achievement was measured in these, you know, ways of like getting A's and all these, like just all of it is so confused. It's so deeply confused. And so like somehow I survived people trying to confuse the shit out of me for so many years, you know, <laughs> was able to find through my autonomous, you know, listening to myself and, and acting in the world and, and going after what I was interested in. Um, eventually things like Buddhism, which is actually, I think an incredibly powerful system for telling us how to live good lives to go back to the Stephen Batchelor ethics thing, like how to live well and how to, you know, just be good, a good person and live well. Um, that stuff that I certainly did not pick up from my upbringing actually, you know? So it's just interesting like that, um, how there's these social privileges, but they come at the cost of actually being in touch with what the hell is going on with being alive and all that, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And the suffering that goes with it, you know, even, even privilege, just because you're privileged doesn't mean you don't suffer. You suffer in different ways, mm -hmm. maybe more insidiously in, in certain ways, like not in, Totally. Not very nobly necessarily, you know, because your suffering yeah. <laughs> is kind of bound up in your privilege and in the machinations that make that enable it. Yeah, inherently uh, privilege is like you're separate, right? Because you're somebody's underprivileged and you're privileged. The separation therein, yeah, is fundamentally like <laughs> it's like where suffering derives from. And then yeah, you have the privilege, but you don't have the communion. And what we need to thrive as beings is the communion. So we're just, you know, in a losing game right there, intrinsically, you know. You know, we have learned from the youngest of ages to suppress our bodies, to say, shut up, you know, to ourselves. Like, I don't want to hear those messages from our bodies. And, you know, folks who, you know, oh God, I don't even know, drug addictions and food addictions, these all come from, like, the, the, the breaking of the bond between mind and body, right? Where the body, the body's messages are not being processed. And I'm speaking from my own experience, coming from my own background to now probably being healthier than I've ever been before. That's in part because through meditation, I have to listen to myself. I have to listen to messages in my body. And I interpret those to mean, you know, gosh, exercise and eating well and you know, sleeping enough and having good relationships, those actually feel good in my body. I have that sensitivity, that interior sensitivity to, to be able to discern between healthful and unhealthful actions, you know, and, and that's, that's a felt thing. And it, it comes through developing that awareness, right? And so I really, I want, I want us to be able to instead of needing to further suppress our bodies to be empowered to synchronize our bodies and minds. And I just want to say one quick thing, my blog title, Sync or Sync, um, what that means to me is we need to synchronize our minds and bodies. Um, when we do, we tighten up that feedback loop, right? That ever present moment where the mind and body are synchronized. And the way that I synchronize my mind and body is through things like meditation and yoga, um, 
in yoga, you have to pay a lot of attention to what your body is doing or you can injure yourself, right? And you also have to tolerate a lot of discomfort, but you get to, you, you learn to discern the edge between like injury and just like strengthening your, your muscles, right? So those, those are really, you know, subtle spiritual uh, features. So yeah, so synchronizing is crucial and the alternative to synchronizing is sinking. So I think of it like the body sinks into this darkness where we or depression or or confusion while the mind is like floating on these chaotic winds of having a thousand thoughts a minute and the body can't keep up. Right? And so the body gets left behind. And the more we indulge our mind uh, and just our minds to the exclusion of our body, the more we denigrate our bodies and say that, you know, we're not, we shouldn't pay any attention to them. And that's the, again, that danger of that teaching that I, that I really, I can't adopt. I can't, I can't, you know, support that teaching that we're not the body because the danger in that is that, okay, so then we should continue to suppress its messages and disconnect from it and detach from it. Um, in favor of, I guess, some kind of aspiring mind, which can include more and more and more and more concepts. It's not about garnering more and more concepts. It's about, right, like finding truths that somehow tie everything together more elegantly, you know? Like, and you mentioned going into a war zone and you could expose yourself to that and you might experience trauma that your body and mind couldn't reconcile perhaps. But what if you had organizing concepts for, for why the harm was arising and why the, the warfare was arising from a deep understanding of humans, you know, and of life and of, of the conditions that brought this into being then you would see that that too is empty. That experience also was empty because it was just a, it's just a emergent, emergent from conditions, you know, and you could be free even in those really difficult situations. And that's what synchronizing mind and body means to me. It's, it's just coming into the full moment, coming into presence, taking everything the moment has to teach you and putting it and organizing it into a coherent, you know, worldview such that you're peaceful enough to get by <laughs> mm-hmm. or to like help others, right? Within, within any situation. We have like 15 minutes left before 1230 when you said you wanted to go. And I wanted to ask if we could do a little bit of metaphysics in the service of ethics. Great. Uh, and I don't know what that means, but sounds good. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm just kind of riffing on on, on the Buddhist geeks because yeah. that's part of you know what they talk about. Um, you know, we're sort of playing a lot with, and there's a polarity perhaps here between the um, the ideas of mind or cognition or understandings or frameworks or or um, concepts, abstraction, and on the other hand, the embodiment and the feeling and the empathetic and the uh, flow. Uh, and the identification with with that, uh, and it's I don't know if it's a tension that really resolves in any neat way, um, but I know that the work that you've been citing um, 
Golden Escherbach is incredibly complex and uh, cognitive, uh, theoretic um, approach to understanding consciousness. Uh, and one of the tenets of this, as you um, report it, uh, I haven't read the book, uh, but the the idea is that consciousness is something that arises out of complexity. Mm-hmm. It arises out of enough recursion in the complexity where the complexity begins to mirror itself. Well, let me let me just correct that really quick. Okay. When there is sufficient complexity, the system becomes self-aware because the system has formed an I subsystem mm-hmm. in order to effectively relate to its phenomena. Yeah. Okay. So that's different, a little different than consciousness per se. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. Self-awareness implies that there is an embodiment or a body that mm-hmm. who's or body, mind, nervous system, brain, <laughs> complex, yeah, right. That <laughs> becomes self-aware through sufficient complexity. So that self-awareness becomes an abstraction, right? That's an abstraction layer because there's now not just the immediacy of one experience, but there's an experience experiencing itself and ascribing um, uh, a narrative to, to that experience and a subject into that experience, which is the I sense. Mm-hmm. Once you get the I sense, and I guess this probably co-emerges, you get the it sense, and the objective the other yeah the other the other Mm -hmm. and you're able to then objectify reality and Mm -hmm. spatialize it and once you can do that then you gain a cognitive capacity which begins to feed on itself and absolutely becomes a sort of exponentially kind of metastasizing sort of process where you develop more and more complexity more and more self-awareness and more and more awareness of how the environment works how nature works so that you can manipulate it uh, better. But it also, why, where does the urge come from? Like, where does the mm. come from to do that? Uh, why is that important to do? Why not just kind of go with the flow? Uh, well, if you, if you think about where, like, so even before the level of complexity in which an organism can have a distinct sense of I, I as opposed to fill in the blank, um, you have innate to DNA, innate to any living thing, an urge to live, an urge to survive, an urge to reproduce. Because if DNA does anything, right, it reproduces itself, again, at a fundamental level. So something about life makes us want to live. (laughs) Like something about being born into a form makes that form want to live, first of all, want to defend itself from, from dangers and, you know, create its, meet its basic needs of shelter and food and water and, and energy and all that. And it makes it want to reproduce. So, uh, so in other words, replicate itself so that when it dies for some, you know, the, the process continues, right? So again, the process seems to be what's most important and, and less so the individual particular forms. So I think it is inborn, right? This inborn drive to, and, and actually having an eye just makes, just extends that and makes it more sophisticated to say I, as opposed to this, like now, you know, it's just a more complex way of defending the self and, and securing reproduction and all that. But what's interesting is about, 
in this particular point in history, all of those natural drives, which have kind of uh, climaxed at this peak global civilization, which is bound to fail, interestingly, seems counterproductive to our survival, right? Because we're actually destroying, like through the model of civilization, which we constantly are going to be driven to exploit new lands or new resources to support growing population, that model doesn't scale when you get to the scale of the planet, right? It just doesn't, there's nowhere else for it to go. So interestingly, that orientation of the self above all else breaks down. Because even in in hierarchical power structures, like we have with the concentration and consolidation of wealth and power in our modern uh, uh, economics, even within that, you know, you see this, this notion that the individual must um, dominate and succeed over others, <laughs> like compete with others and succeed. This whole false interpretation of, you know, capitalism falsely interpreting evolution Dar- and Darwin's concepts as like, yeah, we need to compete with each other and, you know, um, pull yourself up by your bootstraps and there's scarcity interpretation that there's only enough, so much food and some people need to die. And that's the whole debt-based economy, right? It's like that whole concept, you know, derives from this self against other, this, I need to survive. I need to compete. I need to make my way to the top of the survival opportunities, right? Mm. It's breaking down because that doesn't make sense anymore. It's literally not true. It doesn't track anymore to our actual survival. So what's interesting about this moment in time is I think the need for us to grow an awareness. To, so right now, the consequences of our selfish action are actually impacting on a global scale, but yet the individual personal human can't feel what it feels like for there to be famine over here or, you know, soil degradation, like 50% of the world's topsoil is degraded. I don't know that on a daily basis. I'm getting up in the morning and drinking tea and going about my day. I can't feel that. I can't, I'm not sensorily aware of that, but I need to become aware of that to be able to act meaningfully to redress the problems that are on a global scale. So on some sense, in some sense, human consciousness which is responsible for the globalization of our difficulties, of our consequences, needs to somehow scale so that it's aware enough to begin coordinatedly making decisions, you know, mm-hmm. and acting on a scale to address the whole, the whole, the system's thinking, right? Um, that I think is is very popular now and has emerged over the past few decades, and as far as in influencing how you know how things need to proceed. Um, And years before I discovered Buddhism, I was thinking about that. How do we grow our perspective? How can I feel and know damages that my actions might be taking to the the overall system that on an individual level I can't perceive, I fail to perceive, you know, I'm not equipped to perceive. And first of all, I strongly recommend you pick up Gertel Escherbach and start reading it. It's he builds an incredibly powerful, elegant argument. And it goes from basic concepts to more advanced. So it's very, it's very accessible, actually. Um, but he talks, he has a whole chapter about colony mind, about how ants and colonies function and how ants seem to actually, individual ants seem to be programmed or have their 
you know, consciousness uh, structured such that they act in favor of a colony, not in favor of their own individual lives. Um, and, be, and bees also do this. Um, so he talks about that. And, and I, that's very interesting. I'm just going to leave it at that. I'll just advise you to take a look at that. But the other thing I wanted to say was in my own kind of journey of really wanting to understand how could I grow my perspective so that I could actually perceive and begin to work with these, these kind of massive large scale damages that have accrued over many generations of humans. I realized that Buddhist practice actually facilitates um, that kind of awareness fairly well. Um, so Buddhism with its meditation, its de-identification or de-emphasizing of the I or the ego, you know, it's, it's really like, it's just the way it extracts from you. Like, I want this and I desire this and I don't want this to happen. And I do want this to happen. It makes you let go of all of that, how it makes you dedicate any merits gained through your practice to the benefit of all other beings, how it emphasizes compassion um, loving kindness and reality in the sense that what you do matters, not what you think. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, and, and in its emphasis on viewing life less as discrete object forms and more as processes flowing um, for all of those reasons. And actually Fritjof Capra talks about this in the Tao of physics. I think all of those really reinforce the kind of practical skills and sensibilities that we need to develop as individuals to, to again, to grow our perspective at least enough that we can begin to engage with our ecological problems, which as I wrote in a piece called sustainability is mainly a spiritual crisis, not a material one. It's mainly a problem of how we organize concepts and project them out onto the world that we're facing today. We have maladapted methods for surviving that no longer actually secure our survival, but in fact endanger it, right? So it's more about how we organize concepts and, and, and then act thus. Uh, it's more of an issue of that than it is some kind of intrinsic issue because there are indigenous people who who understand how to be in right relation with their relationships with their relations with their environments um and we can all be that we can all because we all are living forms and indigenous to earth we can learn we can relearn some of those organizing concepts and, and patterns in our in ourselves and begin acting and conducting ourselves in more ecological ways, right? So that's that's where it all ties together, I feel. <laughs> you know, that Buddhism is a really choice, personal practice for actually, you know, cultivating a mind such that it can deal with, first of all, deal with just look, witnessing the incredible suffering that we're bringing upon the earth in the next 100,000 years, you know? Just like being able to show up to that is challenge enough. And I think a lot of people are going to break under that <laughs> pressure, but, you know, and then also how to act through synthesizing uh, all of the information that one is receiving and, and acting in right ways. Mm. It's a shitload of karma. 
Let's find your karma, right? Find your thing to go through, your thing to work out. And that's, you know, I have this, I want to show you something real quick. Right here. My friend made me this, this poster. Um, because he knew I liked Buckminster Fuller. Can you read it? Mm -hmm. Things to do are the things that need doing, that you see need to be done, and that no one else seems to see need to be done. Then you will conceive your own way of doing, that which needs to be done, that no one else has told you to do or how to do. This will bring about the real you that often gets buried inside a character that has acquired a superficial array of behaviors induced or imposed by others on the individual. Yeah, and how that connects to me is that um, when we really find who we really are in the whole spectrum of things, through really bearing witness to our unique karma, like we, we find what it is that we need to do. And if we had... 8 billion people on earth who knew what they were here to do, who saw problems through their direct cognitive processes like of living, they saw things that needed to be done in only ways that they could see, you know, and then they just had the empowerment to act directly on them. I don't know, maybe we'd be living in Shambhala. <laughs> Instead, we, we live in these structures where we constantly, our, our power is being siphoned off by systems that actually will kill us <laughs> if we let them, you know? So, yeah. So anyway, I wanted to share that. <laughs> <a little bit. laughs> All right. Well, there's like a dozen different directions I'd want to go into that. <laughs> I mean, that gets, we can start talking about anarchy. Um, yeah. <laughs> that's one of the ideas basically is what you just had. Politics, you mean? Yeah. It's like not, we don't have to have a centralized authority telling us what to do our organizing society for us, that basically society can self-organize. Uh, that's what Maturana... Which is also Varela, indigenous, yeah. Yeah, they, they called it autopoiesis, uh, Varela and Maturana, right? Self-making, yep. Uh, yep. Uh, and the poesis is, of course, related to poetry and to the arts and to creativity. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it's not necessarily a creativity rooted in the... It's definitely not, a, I think, a creativity rooted in, rooted in the separate self or in the individual right. ego. But there is an individualistic aspect to it as well, which comes out in that piece that you just shared, yeah. um, which is, would be interesting to explore uh, what the real Yeah, and, and co-ops as self-help, self-determining, self-empowering, self-making vehicles. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole other And in the kind of idea, which I really am sympathetic to, that you could be 100% individual, you could be 100% singular, you could be the singularity itself and at the same time be everybody or anybody or anybody. And that, you, in fact, that is metaphysically like what you are. <laughs> and Yeah, uh, just somebody. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm happy to have community with you this morning. <laughs> Ditto, yeah. And I, there, of course there's more we can talk about. We already knew that going into this, that this is just one top topic but there's a lot of other things that we that we'd like to talk you and i about i think um, well then let's continue uh, I would, yeah we'll find um, another time to <laughs> to chat but i recorded that and damn, that was a good conversation yeah. I, I, 
I, I really um really dug that. Birds flying high, you know how I feel. Sun in the sky, you know how I feel. Breeze drifting on by, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me, yeah. It's a new dawn, it's a new day. It's a new life for me. Ooh, 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 ooh. And I'm feeling good. Fish in the sea, you know how I feel. River running free, you know how I feel. Blossom on the tree, you know how I feel. It's a new dawn, it's a new day, it's a new life for me. And I'm feeling good. Dragon fly out in the sun, you know what I mean, don't you know? Butterflies all having fun, you know what I mean? Sleep in peace when day is done, that's what I mean. And this old world is a new world and a bold world. Hi, this is Marco, and I'm going to make a couple pitches. First, if you enjoyed that conversation, I invite you to become a sponsor of this podcast so we can do more like it. We need resources to continue producing infinite conversations, and your financial support is welcome and appreciated and will help us dedicate more time to creating this kind of media and improving our productions. Visit infiniteconversations.fm to learn how you can support the show with a one-time or recurring donation. But in addition, you can also join the conversation and really add to it with your own voice. And this whether you give money or not. Head over to our forum at infiniteconversations.com where you can sign up for free to comment on or respond to this show or any other of our publications. And if you want to work with us cooperatively and collaboratively in the areas of podcasting, writing, technology, community organizing, and creating media that engenders and sustains a culture of consciousness, artistry, and ethics to the best that we're able, then I invite you to sign up to become a member of our co-op, Cosmos Cooperative, where we're developing a platform for deep discourse, creative thought, and mindful action. To learn more, visit cosmos.coop. Lastly, I'll mention that Infinite Conversations is now on iTunes and Google Play, so you can subscribe to listen to all our episodes through the podcast app on your phone. And please leave us a review and share us with your social networks so others can learn about what we're up to. Plus, if you subscribe, you'll get to hear part three of this talk, which might have some surprises and which is coming soon. That's all for now. Thanks for listening.